0: Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues, and that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truett, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions and uh, continuing on our voyage into the beyond, a.k.a. a four-letter word, VOID. And uh, my name is Sam Truitt.
1: I am Sparrow.
0: And my name is Andrew Kent McCarran. So, um, I did want to also transmit, um, you know, I I have some notes here regarding the relationship between um the number zero and mm. void, you know, which I thought, you know, is an attribute of the void, you know, one one aspect is that in computer language. They're the same thing. They are a null set without value.
2: The the zero in computer language is the null set?
0: Yeah, is that nothing, you know, void, is distinguished in computer language as nothing, and Mm. that it's a null set without value. Mm -hmm. And that void, therefore, is a number, that it has a numerical existence, Hmm. and that also zero, or this uh, void and zero entity and infinity have the same taste to the extent that zero is represented as the minus sign plus infinity that that's what, you know, is the sign for zero. And the sign for an infinite value is the plus sign, plus infinity. Hmm. You know, that they're very close to each other. You mean minus... Zero is represented... Zero, non-existence, is represented as minus times infinity. And... The totality, the infinite value in language, in uh, mathematical language, is plus, and then the sign infinity. Hmm. I wrote it down here. I can take a picture. I can show it to you.
2: Okay. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I found myself thinking about zero, about the well, the void. I think is essentially uh, a mental construct. There aren't any real voids, as far as we know, at least not on Earth.
3: Yeah, this friend, um, this Norwegian friend, who's a philosopher of mathematics, when huh. I was doing my divinity degree at Harvard Divinity School, he was completing his PhD in the philosophy department. And uh, he is a philosopher of numbers. He currently teaches at the University of Oslo. He wrote a book that I have not read but he was trying to explain to me, and I was having a hard time following. But it's about a concept called thin numbers. Thin numbers. Thin numbers. Huh. And I think uh, maybe part of it is that there is no zero. Really? Yeah. How could that uh, be? Fish I fish don't sea? know. I shouldn't even <laughs> brought this up
2: because I could just offer that. That's interesting, though. I like the idea of thin oh, numbers. I can picture something there. <laughs>
0: Just to sort of reference, you know, one of the um, forebears, you know, Duchamp speaks of the infra thin. Infra thin. And what is the infra thin? What is the
2: infra thin? And what is the infra thin? I don't know, you just brought it up. What is infra thin? What is infra thin? And what is the infra-thin? I'm looking up thin numbers now. And What is the infra-thin? I I thought
0: you were going to bring it down, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, what did Duchamp mean by the infra-thin? Do you know, Sam?
0: You know, there's Mm -hmm. something kind of weirdly radioactive about the nature of the Uh, infra-thin. You know, intellectually, it's kind of like... a nuclear isotope. you got to handle it super carefully. Okay. I, you know, I, I think need we need some...
2: Put you on the spot. <laughs> I'm not sure I really understand Duchamp at all, really, to be honest. I mean, I understand the idea of walking into a hardware store, finding an object, and saying, this is a work of art. That makes sense to me. Perfect sense to me. But uh, I don't understand nude descending a staircase particularly... I don't understand that weird sort of assemblage, um, what do you call it, installation at the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art, bride stripped bare by the bachelor or the bachelor stripped bride bare by the bridesmaid or something. I just don't understand what's going on in his head, except that he seems to be playing an awful lot of chess. What about you, Andrew? Did you find within yeah, number? i just, I did, but I, I'm, I'm lost, and I wish I didn't bring it up. You know,
3: <laughs> it would.
1: Be it
0: has a-, a little bit of the taste of Zeno's arrow. Yeah, that's right. It does. Yeah. yeah. The idea that there
2: isn't any absolute that that uh, the arrow goes half the distance, half the rest of the distance, half the other distance, and then never gets to the target. It's like the numbers are so thin, we don't really need a zero because a zero is oversimplification, kind of. Kind of like I was saying, that there's no void in nature. And because of dark matter, as we sort of said in the last podcast, we really don't know that there's a void between planets. It might be totally chock full of dark matter. So what the void really is, I would say, is a mental idea. And what it's useful for is, as Sam was bringing up, um, the idea of alternating something with nothing, which is, in fact, what we are doing as we speak. Like when a bird, a bird speaks, thing. a bird
0: speaks, says, ah! Yeah, be careful about something. What I was positing is everything for nothing. That the infinity is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and we cannot underestimate the kind of power that zero has had as an engine that's driven the, you know, progress, the material progress and sophistication of human beings for the last, uh, thousand years. The phrase ground zero just came to mind. The place where something happens.
2: Usually something horrible.
3: Something horrible. Something apocalyptic where the uh, Chronos becomes, what, Kairos, right?
2: What, do you, what does that mean? Where the time ordinary becomes a place?
3: Time, ordinary <laughs> time becomes um,
2: intensified mm, yeah. at ground zero. I think sometimes it's used positively, like he was at ground zero of the computer revolution or something. You, I, you can sometimes be at ground zero of something good, but at least... In New York City, you think of Ground Zero is where the uh, World Trade Center used to be.
3: And and there, I think, in the, I've never been there, but I think I've seen images on the news and in photographs. Aren't there two large footsteps or voids there? Isn't that part of the permanent?
2: You mean physical footsteps?
3: Yeah, like the original hollowed out foundations of the um, Twin Towers have been oh. to reflecting pools, like to um, voids.
2: That's Uh, the park or memorial, rather. Yeah, with the names of the dead inscribed around the pool, maybe.
1: Correct.
2: Yeah, that's
0: my image of it. It's like the the feet of Colossus, you know, like the Colossus of Rhodes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I went to Rhodes once, and you find yourself, when you're there, trying to picture this Colossus astride the harbor which is pretty hard to do. But I want to give some of my notes, if I may, that uh, because as I was coming here, I went to my um, group therapy. I'm in this group therapy. I don't know if i ever, ever discussed it in these podcasts. But we call it group therapy. It's maybe sort of a joke, but it's in some ways real group therapy. There's three of us. We're three different ages, 10 years apart, 58, 68, 78. We meet every few weeks. So today we met in Saugerty's at the Inquiring Minds bookstore. So then my friend Dana took me back to Kingston. I got on the UCAT bus, the uh, Ulster County Area Transit Bus. It's the bus for poor people that don't have any other way to get around Ulster County. It's much cheaper than the Trailways bus. It costs 75 cents if you're 55 or over oh, cool. to go anywhere. And, uh, you know, but if you change buses, you got to pay another 75 cents. But, uh, but it has no lights on. Or actually, the one I was on tonight had one light on one side of the bus, but not enough to read by. I felt that I would strain my eyes. So I got on the bus at five and I was on it about an hour. And, uh, so I'm, I realized, my God, I'm kind of hurtling through this void. I'm in a dark bus hurtling through the dark world of Route 28. And now is my chance to study the void. I'm, I'm in the void. And one thing I, I noticed is there's really a sense of space when you're traveling at night on a road during the day. Route 28 looks like a road. There's pizza shops, there's dollar stores, there's the marijuana. Dispensary for uh, medical marijuana. There's the uh, Harley Davidson store. But at night, it becomes almost nothingness, just a kind of blackness. And you're speeding through it. And you see occasional uh, headlights that are coming towards you. And then suddenly, with incredible clarity, there's on your right hand side, there's a car wash, a little square white room brilliantly lit with a car inside like a hallucination kind of and the rest of the time you're 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 sort of don't know what to do with yourself and then one thing i discovered is the void is soporific you start falling asleep you start getting into this kind of quasi sleep state that maybe is like our natural state, if there aren't details in life, we fall back into this kind of semi slumber. Like a cat.
3: Like yeah, what? like
2: my dogs. Yes. Yeah. Like I totally <laughs> an understand. <animal. laughs> and then the, uh, in the windows of the bus, you see reflected the inside of the bus. And then I started thinking, well, maybe that's a sign that the void reflects us back though. And I started to think about people because we were discussing at my group therapy today, Benedict Cumberbatch, me and Dana hate Benedict Cumberbatch and Janet loves Benedict Cumberbatch. I just saw him in a new movie called, uh, power of the dog. The going. gone. Yeah. And I think maybe they saw one of these movies too. And, uh, but who even knows what Benedict Cumberbatch is? We don't know anything about him. He's just a famous person we've seen in movies. He's really a kind of void that we project our emotions on. And if your emotions turn a particular direction, then you'll hate them. If they turn in another direction, then you'll love them. And pretty much all famous people, and maybe everything, is just a kind of void that you project
0: your your feelings onto. So well, anyway, that's yes, how I think about it. sparrow. What I do really feel, you know, that they are all scrambling around the void. You know, like the void is like that um, jungle gym, or you know, whatever those kids were racing yeah. around. You know, and they were all still just scrambling around inside, you know, in the void. I
2: mean, the I was one thing so that I moved found...
0: by your glimpse. Uh, oh, thank accurate. you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what,
2: what I found is that, you know, the void is pretty good if you're moving through it. That's the best thing to do through the, in the void is just keep uh-huh. moving because then it kind of makes sense. If you just, you know, suppose I was stuck in one spot on Route 28 for the entire night, it might get a little oppressive. But there's this nice American feeling of like I'm in a car. I'm zooming down the highway from nowhere to nowhere, you know? You really captured Route 28. I agree with Sam.
3: That was vivid. Oh, yeah? I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like driving from Bard to Sam's house at night.
2: Is yeah, that- it is a weird kind of vacuous place.
3: I know one way I deal with the, uh, I guess, the void on some level is I guess I I get snacky at night. This is not interesting, but I'm going to share it anyway, and then we'll get back to something more profound. But I do get snacky at night. I I, <laughs> I fill myself with food. I feel when I, when I like night. that voidness. I don't know if it's to like I'm feeling bodied or to fill some emptiness. But there is
2: something there. My wife, you know, she'll wake up in the night and she'll usually eat. And it's almost like she's not exactly hungry, but it's the way to get back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. I like think if you eat. Your body is more likely to sort of shut down and to digest.
0: I mean, um, do you all resonate with the, with the void? Like a feeling, like you have some orientation with the nature of the void that you mm. can access?
3: Mm. I don't, I feel, um, I feel I run, flee from it. I feel like I'm, um, an uneasy, relationship with the void i don't have any sort of spiritual strategy for entering it um i'm aware of it i can tolerate it in different degrees at different times um sometimes i find it petrifying sometimes i'm in denial sometimes i hide sometimes i run occasionally i've just like let it seep through me
2: yeah what about prayer
3: yeah I'm I'm um Catholic I don't think I have such a rich prayer life uh-huh. and in fact I'm entering into a spiritual direction relationship where I'm instead of doing therapy I'm going to get I've, I've sought out a some something of a guide like to, a Catholic yeah like a um mystic Catholic type
2: oh.
3: um to offer So you are you're
2: kind of working this is your New Year's resolution to work on your prayer life. I guess it's
0: going too far to say.
3: No, no, I think I think you're,
0: you're spot on. Well, mm. Andrew, within the Judeo-Christian trajectory, what is the relationship with the void? Is there an articulation in New Testament literatures, um, you know, that points to that place? You know, because certainly. You know architecturally, the void is such a presence, especially out of the uh, the sixteenth century
3: the 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 poetry of the Spanish Dominican mystic and monk St John of the cross that's what I was thinking of the dark night of the soul the right? dark night of the soul and the canticle of the spirit um he developed what's referred to as a negative or apathetic theology that involves um an emptying out. Or desiccation of of the spirit as a process of um, dying and being reborn, really. But mm-hmm. he believed it was a necessary part of the spiritual journey. Evelyn Underhill, the 20th century mystical writer, referred to it, I believe, as dark illumination. Mm-hmm. It's almost and, like
2: dark matter.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost just like dark dark matter. Um, and you you, know, you go into it, you empty out. You unsay, you know, it really is um, a move Mm. into the void, but you're traveling through it. There's some larger process like Sparrow on that bus, Uh Route 28. It's uh, you Uh stay there that uh, that a new self or new possibility of something deeper um, is born out of that purgative process.
2: But the dark night of the soul, I must say, I have no idea. I know the phrase, and I've never really known what it is. Is it like doubt? Does it mean that you sort of lose faith for for a time? Is that what the dark night of the soul means?
3: Um, I mean, it's often interpreted that way. But I, I think it's just about um, relinquishing positive um, content and form. Hmm. Um. Do you want to hear the poem? It's pretty short. Sure. Yeah. I have it right here. My mother just did um, an artistic series of paintings on this poem, stanza by stanza. Um, So here it is. It's not very long, just a few stanzas. Uh, The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. On a dark night, kindled in love with yearnings, oh, happy chance. I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder, disguised, oh, happy chance, and the darkness and in concealment, my house being now at rest. Mm. In the happy night and secret, when no one saw me, nor I beheld aught, without light or guide, save that which burned in my heart, this light guided me, more surely than the light of noonday, to the place where he, well, I knew who was awaiting me, a place where none appeared. O night that guided me, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that joined beloved with lover, lover transformed in the beloved, upon my flowery breast, kept holy for himself alone, there he stayed sleeping, and I caressed him, and the fanning of the cedars made a breeze, the breeze blew from the turret as I parted his locks. With his gentle hand, wounded my neck and caused my senses to be suspended. I remained lost in oblivion. My face reclined on the beloved. All ceased, and I abandoned myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies.
1: It's in Spanish, right?
2: The original's in Spanish.
3: It's in Spanish.
2: Holy
3: cow.
0: Super that, homoerotic.
3: Homoerotic, yeah. I was like, oh my goodness, this is like Whitman. <laughs>
0: yeah. I was reading it. That was my resonance, too. Yeah. Myself, right? I thought, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I thought it that's you're reading Jesus?
2: This? The other character? The other guy? Is yeah. Jesus? It's Jesus, some
3: union mystico, some union with the divine. But, you know, the house has to be at rest first. The night has to wash over. It's. Mm. This emptying out,
0: this desiccation. Yeah. What I really glommed onto, and I'd be super interested in looking at the original, is that phrase "none appeared."
2: Yeah, that was um, interesting. There's
0: that. There's this moment at which none appeared in the in the language that you read, and I thought that was really the um, this kind of you know click.
2: Mm. It was surprising, because you're expecting someone to appear. <laughs> it seems like he's leading up to some mystical union, and then he said none appeared, and that was like, oh, it's a little twist.
3: My mother's uh, my mother had a, a mystical experience with you, and we didn't really talk about that, but I know one occurred in her 40s. And, he had, hmm. and I think that's why she's into St. John of the Cross, but it, it did have to do with the voidness, or Confrontation, or an, not confrontation, encounter with nothingness or the none mm. that um, was simultaneously terrifying, but also like regenerative, in that it created, I think, a ground zero mm. from which to build on in a new way that brought maybe um, some new perspective or new life or very mm. very Christian ideas of transfiguration and. Hmm. Theology itself, but there you have it.
2: And it's almost like what I was trying to say before about the way the, uh, the void functions in speech that you read a book and of course there's lots of voids in between words. If, if it was all one word without uh, spaces between the words, it would be extremely difficult to read. In the same way it's difficult to hear a speech if we didn't pause between each word. The pauses, the word, the alternation of the two, it's like we need the pause in order to make intelligible what's there. And we need those breaks in our life, those kind of breakdowns sometimes, to in order to make intelligible the rest of our lives. We need a retreat. We need a
0: a time to escape. You know, in our current incarnation, we're very habituated to time Mm. um, and narrative. And also this
2: uh, coronavirus, which once again, actually, but also almost continuously for like two years, has made us all enter this retreat, this collective avoiding of each other and... It's it's been a kind of a, a void time for us, where people. I think my friend Mary Bustakowski was saying, it used to be you couldn't remember what day it was. Now you can't remember what month it is or what year it is. Like we're all kind of in this void zone together, of kind of everything's kind of stopped in a way. It stopped, and UFOs are
0: real. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: It's really interesting, and
0: we're still like looking for the what's going to come next, you know, yeah. in terms of time and narrative. That's all.
1: Yeah, yes, right.
2: Absolutely.
0: Also, that ladder I wanted to point out
2: in that poem uh, there early on, isn't there a ladder? He which descending the ladder. Yeah, which made me think, oh, the chakras. This is the tree of life in the uh, Jewish mysticism. The uh, the idea in yoga that you ascend through the chakras to the highest chakra where you reach liberation. I don't know if I'm just projecting that onto him, but maybe that's something like that is what he's talking to me.
0: Well, it could also be, you know, a little bit of the call of the deep mm-hmm. that it, we've spoken of.
3: It, you know, it's interesting.
0: I, I was
3: uh, When I was reading um, Thomas Chalano's Life of St. Francis when we were discussing this canticle of the... Uh, the moon and canticle of the sun, right?
1: Oh yeah.
3: Um Thomas Cholano mentions that Francis had this very close friend in adolescence around Assisi. And that they would um descend into this cave on the side of the mountain. Hmm. And it was in conversation with one another in the depths that that Francis's theology and spirituality really began to emerge. Huh that there was some, you know, there was some pro, you know, it's like the catastasis, um, right, in ancient Greek mythology, the descent down into Hades and then the return with some new wisdom or some some new some
2: new take on things. That's maybe tragic. But and also caves. There's a tradition of human beings in caves going back at least 29,000 years to those uh, beautiful artwork in the uh, caves in France and Spain and Lascaux.
3: Um, to the caves, Elisa and I and Sofia. when Sophia is very small, maybe just about two or three, and it's
2: a, a real, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think you mentioned it. And it seems like it it had, well, who knows, but... It's possible to believe it had some initiatory purpose, the caves.
3: Yeah. Well, Herzog, in his Cave of Forgotten Dreams, that wonderful documentary, sees it as a place where dream incubation. Where what? Dream incubation. Oh, wow. What does that mean? The dream incubation is this ancient tradition um, where you set some sort of intention. Maybe it's for animals or uh, maybe it's for healing. And you set the intention and then go into a um sacred space and sleep and dream
2: Whoa. oh you have a special place to dream, yeah,
3: and that that's like cave, your
2: dream place
3: two cave may have been that And um, that's you know that's who who the hell knows, but that's that was one
0: anthropologist's theory part of the Eliotic school of you know philosophy, but I think it's also based again on you know that there's something we need to do hmm that one needs to to do anything. Um, you know, that there's some some crossroad out ahead that's yet to happen that hasn't already. Hmm. You know, and again I think it's our habituation with time and narrative, you know, being in a story and of being, an being event driven and uh you know, hmm. waiting for the next thing.
2: Huh. Yeah, I've had the thought that it's Americans in particular that have this apocalyptic urge to uh, that the world's going to end i think americans are more susceptible than other people to these uh, ideas of the uh, the big apocalypse that's destroying the world uh, or the second coming of christ some kind of i think maybe because we don't have traditions as a, as a people as a culture Particularly Mm -hmm. so except sort of semi invented traditions. You know, I think we we have this kind of urge for some big final showdown (laughs) kinda just gonna
0: But you see, I I really want to, you know, do an affirmation of of this Spanish mystic, you know, who proposed this idea that none appeared like Mm. In other words, the proposition that none appeared is, you know, at any moment, you know, none may appear. And Hmm. that's not event-driven. It's simply, it's not time or event-driven. Hmm. It's also a pun because none is the name of the uh,
2: female clergy in the Catholic Church.
0: Within whatever translation, um, universe, yeah. But in French too, it's none. Uh, I thought he was Spanish. <laughs> I thought our poet was Spanish.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying it's not only in English that none is the word none. Of course, right. Of course, the word none meaning nothing, I think does not exist in French.
0: Come to think of it. <laughs> I really, really do want to focus in, like, like none may appear at any moment, like this moment.
2: What do you mean by none may appear? That nothingness may appear.
3: The absence of a thing, that the void, a void. Yes, it could, it, and you're saying Sam that it's not event-driven. It's something that uh, it's intriguing. It's it's something that what it happens,
2: it's very suddenly. Uh huh. It's the opposite of something happening. It's none appeared.
0: And for which there's no attribution and is indescribable Hmm. and, you know, exists without measure, you know, and is immediate to any human being and is our real nature, Hmm. probably.
2: Nothingness, you mean?
0: I think that which can be articulated as nothingness, which, but which at the same time is of an infinite value. The, yeah. the two within our dimensional perspective, they seem indistinguishable. Oh, I see what you mean. seem the same to us. Just going back to the mathematical, you know, uh, rhyme, Uh, You know, with the use of the symbol infinity and the plus and minus symbols, like very simple math. But those are the two foundations. Um, Those are the limits of mathematics, aren't they?
2: Well, it might be like this uh, Lao Tzu poem. I was going to, I suddenly thought, oh, yeah, Lao Tzu, he's got the answer here. And then I opened up my Lao Tzu book and it was already marked the uh, the poems that are about the void, this oh. is a very famous one. Lao Tzu, great Chinese philosopher of roughly uh, 500 B.C. This is poem 11. Thirty spokes will converge in the hub of a wheel, but the use of the cart will depend on the part of the hub that is void. With a wall all around, a clay bowl is molded, but the use of the bowl will depend on the part of the bowl that is void. Cut out windows and doors in the house as you build, but the use of the house will depend on the space in the walls that is void. So advantage is had from whatever is there, but usefulness rises from whatever is not. I love this translate translation. This is R. B. Blackney, a mentor book. I still have this uh, paperback. It cost 35 cents originally. That is a good translation.
0: That's a great translation.
2: Yeah, he's a Christian missionary. This is yeah this this edition is 1955. Raymond B. Blackney. He's a Christian missionary who seems to have kind of fallen in love with Taoism, and I've never found a better translation, and I've looked at a lot of them.
3: He's got a real crisp punchiness.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's got sort of a almost a kind of rhyming quality. Well, let me just read this other one since I uh, since I'm on a a roll, a Tao Te Jing roll. This is number four. The way, you know, the way is like uh, the Tao, the, the way that we're all, the way that the universe works, the way that is the answer to everything. The way is a void, used but never filled, an abyss it is, like an ancestor from which all things come. It blunts sharpness, resolves tangles, it tempers light. Subdues turmoil. A deep pool it is, never to run dry. Whose offspring it may be, I do not know. It is like a preface to God. <laughs> the Taking preface to God
0: is an interesting um, metaphor. It, yeah. um, it it actually points away from the way, which is interesting. And it's interesting yes. that it's translated by somebody with the Christian attitude.
2: Yeah, and I oh. think there's some of this this part where like it blunts sharpness, resolves tangles. I think he's thinking of like those psalms where it says something like God will make the hills flat and raise the valleys, or something like that. He's sort of like hinting at this biblical language, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I I think that. You know, the way is heard through the Baryan acoustic oscillations. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe. And the song of the universe, yeah. The call of the song, the call of uh, what is. The music of the celestial spheres.
2: Yeah, and maybe also just ordinary sounds around us, since we can't normally hear the whole universe I'm kind of interested, I don't know if we talk about this, this idea of kind of a uh, where you, an augury, like, where you use some chance method to kind of hear the universe. I mean, the tarot cards are kind of uh, obvious example, but really anything, just taking any moment and just listening. You can do it with your ears. Just listen to what's around you. And that's in a way, the voice of the universe. You can in
0: a God of the
3: Vida. I'm <laughs> um, here. I'm, I'm just nestling into my seat in Route 28.
2: <laughs> 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 you know? Sailing through the dash. Uh Andrew, you want to do the next word? Oh, uh, maybe
3: you guys think this is a little corny or something, but I think it could be really interesting. What about, you know, very much in the spirit of Plato's Symposium,
2: what about love? Wow.
0: Love. Yeah, we haven't discussed love. Let's oh, wow. oh, know the three love. guys. Oh, love. That's interesting. You know, I think we should do one on love. Here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions. My name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is
3: Andrew McCarran.
0: And now we're going to talk about Uh, What we talk about when we try to talk about love, love. Love.
2: I think we're all really nervous about this.
0: I am. I just feel
2: like we're all just exuding anxiety about having to confront (laughs) love. I had an easier time confronting the void. Yeah, I know. Uh The void is kind of simple compared to love. I said to my wife today, well, we're going to discuss love. And my wife said, that's a big topic. I said, well, remember, we're guys. We're three guys. Like, for guys, love is not that big a topic. Like, once once you get past saying, I really love the Pittsburgh Steelers, there's not that much left to say.
0: That's the thing about being a guy. For uh-huh. women, it's
2: a vast topic.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. How would you identify the opening of the range of what we could talk about when we talk about love? To the extent that what is it that you feel perhaps Violet, you know, would be able to like talk endlessly about what face of it?
2: I guess I kind of picture women discussing relationships. Uh, like I'm watching some ridiculous video on YouTube where this woman who was in she was a star of sex in the city. And she's searching for her missing grandfather in um, Northern England, near Liverpool. She's, I uh, think, born in England, raised in Canada. Her name is Gillian Anderson or something like that. And, and I also have a missing grandfather. And it just seems like a lot of this show is her talking to other women and they're saying something like, so he was the cousin, right? So he was... And over here in the photograph, that's she's the granddaughter, right? And they're like, yes, yeah, she's the granddaughter, but she was not so close to Elsie. And these like gradations of relationship, I think, are very vivid, as often displayed in photographs, are very vivid to women. And men are like, okay, I've seen one photograph, I've seen uh, a, a thousand photographs, I don't need to see. 40 more pictures of your family and try to glean from these little goofy expressions on their faces all their meanings of their interactions. I think men in general, even I don't consider myself very a masculine man, but I just get easily bored by photographs, relationships, subtle family intrigues, those sort of things. But I think women, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say, I shouldn't even have started saying this uh women like to talk about this sort of thing that's what they mean by love well for women love involves this whole web of relationships for men love is like oh i get horny then i feel love
0: (laughs) Uh so you're saying that love has is something that is inextricably intertwined with the family tree in some way
2: not necessarily the family tree but uh with complicated dynamics between people, with relationships of some kind, not always familial, but maybe ultimately, maybe it starts in the family. Maybe all women are basically Freudians and think that everything starts in the family and kind of works its way outward into the world. Men tend to be a little bit more like narcissistic, like kind of, well, I feel love, I feel love. feel love for this person for that cantaloupe
0: you know yeah well sparrow it seems to me it is true that within conversation within a family
1: Hmm.
0: you're given a free pass to deploy the word love you know yeah certainly in any kind of written stuff and including men which you know like Writing to friends, you don't necessarily say, you know, love, Sam, you know. Um, whereas with family, it's a sort of common place. Oh, that's interesting. Although, yeah. you
2: might not say, I love my mother. People, you don't hear guys say that. I really love my mother. That you don't hear. Really? Do you Gosh, think let's talk about this, Sparrow. I Have we ever said it here in this uh, We've been talking for, you know, years together. Has any of us ever said, oh, I really love my father, I really love my mother, I really love my uncle, Joe?
0: Well, have I I shown you my tattoo? Uh, No. Well, you know, I've got my mom tattoo right on my heart. You do, really? Big flaming (laughs) red heart, you know, and it says mom across it. Really? Like a sailor. You You know what really interested me? and it's
3: it has something to do with what we're talking about. First, I would like to say, Sam, it was interesting that you nodded to Raymond Carver at the beginning of the podcast, his famous short story, what we talk oh, yeah. about when we talk about love, which is a phenomenal modern day retelling of the Plato symposium of the symposium, um, in that it's about a group of people, in the case of Raymond Carver's short story. Two couples, two middle-aged couples that get together and talk about what love is or what love isn't. And they discover um, that they all have pretty radically different ideas. It's such a vast topic. Looping back to um, Violet's remark. But I was struck in graduate school when I was in my divinity program, when I learned that in ancient Greek, there are four different words for love. There are four different types of love.
2: Right, I've heard this, but I only know two, Eros and Agape.
3: Yeah, so they are um, Eros, which um, is strong, sexual, corporeal, glandular love, romantic love. There's um, Agape, which is um, universal, impersonal love. Impersonal, because uh, you don't have to know the person. You experience Agape for ideally everyone. Hmm. The the third is storge. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but that would be love of obligation, the love
0: you feel for family members who you you despise. It. Hey Sparrow, you can't do the tinky tinky with glasses and stuff during a podcast. I, I have to drink. My my, my throat is. I, cold. I know, but you use like a rubber, you know, rubber. <laughs> rub- I think it adds to the
2: verisimilitude of our, of our, it's like we're sitting in a bar. Oh.
3: Storge would be love of obligation. Experienced, I think most commonly in in extended family units where you, you, you have some kind of love for people who you wouldn't ordinarily socialize with most likely. Oh,
2: right. Republicans.
3: Um, Yeah, the Republicans in our families. Uh, and then there, then there's philia, and philia would be like an intense personal love. Probably um, most recognizable in the phenomenon of one's best friend or a really close friend, a friend of the spirit, a friend of the mind. There isn't mm. sexual, erotic relationship there, but there's an intensity that, um, you know, has a lot of the similar characteristics as a love relationship, as a romantic relationship, in that it. There's a level of exclusivity, there's an intensity of feeling, there could be devastation and hurt if the friendship dissolves. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's charged. It has a power to it. BFF. Yeah, the BFF, absolutely. Yeah. Those were the four word concepts that opened up love in a, in a way that um, made it uh, easier for me to think about it because it's so large.
0: Yeah, I dig it. I mean, you know, it's a sort of taxonomy, and I was thinking about our last session talking about the void and how you know we could have applied that sort of approach to that subject or word also. True. The one that interests me is the storge, the obligation, and I was wondering whether that related to sort of ritual and ceremony, huh. related to the polis and to customs, you know, like that um, W. B. Yeats. Line, you know, how else but in custom and ceremony may beauty and innocence be born? Nice line. Yeah, I, I like the atmospheric sound. I mean, I think it's part of the composition and I'm glad that you're I won I'm, you over. Yeah, I'm changing my tune. Let's rough it up. <laughs> I mean the
2: storegate, what strikes me is like that sorta of does not exist in our culture. And, and I was thinking from partly from what you were saying, Sam, it's like kind of like the love of being on jury duty. Here I am, I'm doing my service to the community, to the larger, to the state. I'm making myself available to make my wisdom, my personal discernment available to the legal system if necessary. Of course, usually I'm not gonna pick you, but sometimes I do. And no one ever says, ah, I love going on jury duty. I love doing my duty for the state. My father, You know, used to say it was a kind of one of his provocative statements. I love paying taxes. I wish I could pay more taxes. He had that sturgate because he is a communist. Communists are all sturgate, really. A big piece of it
3: is, um, you know, one way that it differs from, say, philia is in the way that it's reinforced by um, often by blood, some sort of genetic tie and early memories and familiarity Hmm. and ritual. Yeah, ritual and custom ascension. Mm. Those would be the things that safeguard it, construct the parameters within which it circulates.
2: It does strike me that religion, what we call religion, could, uh, maybe this is going a little too far, but could be divided up among these four types of love. The way you talk about ritual as being storge, that seems like, well, that's religion. But what about agape? Agape, in the higher sense, is what religion really is. And even eros, there's a, you go to the Catholic church, people are wearing these kind of sexy outfits and there's uh, the, the priest is wearing a gown and there's incense. There's a kind of an erotic uh, element to it. And philia, well, I mean, one of my best friends in youth, my friend Jeffrey, we would go to synagogue together all the time, we had a philio-religio relationship. Filio-Stergio relationship.
0: I feel like there's a Tallulah Bankhead um, joke, <laughs> you know, at the edges of this. Regarding um, Catholic worship, and um, we, yeah. we should drop that.
2: Oh, yeah, you don't want us to get firebombed by an angry Catholic.
0: No, I'm I'm, I'm well, I just... And, and, I... <laughs>
3: Detecting
0: some anti-popery. I mean, I don't think that we have as broad an application of what love is as that, as those four um, stanchions or pillars of love.
2: You mean in our culture?
0: Yeah, I think love has been a little bit narrowed down principally to, you know, familial and then romantic. You know forms of love that you know certainly the ster- sturgy. Well, I would say there's a there's there is a
3: category of love that I would say has proliferated in the United States in my lifetime, maybe before I don't know, but it doesn't exist in the uh, the Greek ancient Greek taxonomy, and that's self love. <laughs> oh great! I did, I, I know um, some people who who are recipients of life coaching. Hmm. They've hired these rather extensive life coaches. I, I tend to be um, somewhat skeptical um, of the notion of coaching. But uh, one thing that's emerged from some of the uh, things I've heard is that uh, a big emphasis is self-love. Oh, that if you love yourself, um, everything else will be possible, professionally and interpersonally. It's presented in such a facile manner as I just described, but it has been mentioned. Self-love. Self-love. I don't
2: even know what that means. Yes. Self-esteem. I think it's connected, I would say, offhand. It's more uh, synonymous, maybe, with self-esteem. Yeah. But- I do have some place I think that we could
3: start at this moment that's pretty tangible. Can I try it out? Sure. Okay. Sure. I've always been intrigued. I've mentioned Eric Erickson many times across our various conversations. I've always been interested in his claim that the uh, the first psychosocial stage of life, which would um, correlate with our infancy, maybe our first year or two, is called, according to Erickson, basic trust versus mistrust. He believed that um, an infant and small child needed a heck of a lot of love. and if that were present, trust was established, and the foundation was laid for um the ability to overcome pretty much any obstacle that one might face later on. Mm. And it didn't always happen, but the foundation was key. the foundation was there if it, if it weren't there, it would be very hard for someone to make up for that that um There would always be some sort of deficit. There would always be some sort of lack that would be Mm. expressed in um, an absence of self-confidence and inability to trust others. That love was just so key in that first window, developmentally.
2: Mm. Mm. Any thoughts? I must say it's making me think of this Agatha Christie book that my wife and I are listening to on, uh, on her phone. I think it's called They Do It With Mirrors or something like that. And it's about a rich woman who's I can never remember the names of anybody in literature. Let's say her name is Kathy Ann. And she marries a guy. He's an idealist. He turns her estate into a psychiatric home for delinquent children. I think they use the word delinquent. This is 1951 two, I think the book is published. So it's just sort of the beginning of this concept of juvenile delinquency and of of really the ascendancy of psychiatric thinking, Freudian psychiatric thinking. And basically, this is the whole hypothesis of this institute, that these children have been abused, as we would say now, they've been... uh, Uh, robbed of a stable childhood and therefore they can't function in the world and they need some sort of psychiatric intervention. And then every so often in the book, some hard-headed normal person who's not in a cloud of psychiatry says, well, look, everybody has a tough childhood. Lots of people have tough childhoods and they just overcome it. They just work to overcome it. And this is kind of this, you know, in a in the way that a mystery novel can be a philosophical debate, which is maybe not a very satisfying way in this case. That's what the book is about. Are you forever eternally damaged by your deprived childhood? Or if you have enough gumption, can you overcome it? And should you stop feeling sorry for yourself and endlessly going through therapy about it? Just pull yourself up maybe by the, by your pants and get moving. Arguably one could argue it's the difference between the therapy and, uh, and life coaching. But, uh, and, and when you listen to this book, you just start to think, yeah, I don't, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if you're, if it's just hopeless, if you have a bad childhood. it seems like some people have utterly deprived, miserable childhoods and, uh, Maybe they come out a little weird, eccentric, but they're very successful,
0: and they, mm. they somehow okay. resolve. Well, I- Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.